Lecture Notes, Hume. David Hume is a first for this class, which is of course conducted in English. He is the first English-speaking philosopher we're going to study. Hume was an 18th century Scotsman. Although Hume was an empiricist, he was also a skeptic. This makes him a fun but unsettling person to study and think about. He argues that we cannot rationally defend the laws of science, and he condemns much of the other philosophy we've covered thus far as, quote, sophistry and illusion. Hume wasn't just a skeptic about empiricism and science, however. He was also skeptical about Christianity. Of the philosophers we're covering in this class, he will be the first one to argue against the traditional arguments for the existence of God. Before reading or listening on, I do have two videos embedded in the lecture notes that I want you to watch that give an overview of Hume's empirical skepticism. So it's part one and part two um, from Wi-Fi. Hume's skepticism is definitely complicated. <laughs> so obviously if you're listening now and don't want to take a break to watch, that's fine. But I do strongly recommend watching these videos because uh, understanding Hume is something that's going to require you to probably go over it uh, at least twice, if not a few more times. That's normal. So just, just expect that from the beginning. All right, part one, Hume's fork. For Hume, there are two categories of knowledge, relations of ideas on the one hand and matters of fact on the other. This division is sometimes known as Hume's fork. What does each mean? Relations of ideas are necessary truths known through reason. Necessary in this context means logically necessary, like it is logically impossible for the claim to be false. It might be helpful to think back to Avicenna on this point where we talked about necessary, contingent, and impossible truths. Some examples of relations of ideas are, all triangles have three sides, all bachelors are unmarried, a squared plus b squared equals c squared. Imagine for a moment that a news reporter went out to investigate whether or not all triangles really have three sides, or he was going out to disprove the Pythagorean theorem. That wouldn't make sense, right? That's because no experience could disprove a relation of ideas. That is, nothing you see or encounter or hear, etc. in the world could dissuade you from the idea that all triangles have three sides. That's because our knowledge of relations of ideas is a priori, and a priori knowledge means before experience. You can see a priori, see the kind of prior in that, so think prior to experience. And because relations of ideas are necessarily true. On the other hand, consider the following claims. All dogs have four legs, apples are red, fire causes pain if you touch it, rent in New York City is expensive, objects when dropped will fall. Each of these statements is an example of what Hume calls matters of fact. If we negate any one of them, say, all dogs do not have four legs, or fire does not cause pain, no logical contradiction is generated. Of course, it's false that fire does not cause pain. But the idea that fire would not cause pain when we touch it isn't a logical contradiction. Logically speaking, it's possible we could have been the sort of beings who are impervious to fire. It might be helpful to think of this in terms of possible worlds. Is there a possible version of the world in which fire causes a tickling sensation? Yes. So it's not logically necessary that fire burns when touched. Is there a possible version of the world in which squares have 13 sides? No, by definition, that 
shape would no longer be a square. So in short, matters of fact are judgments about the world based on our experience of it. Because matters of fact are based on experienced, they are a posteriori or known after or through experience. In possible worlds terminology, matters of fact are not true in every possible world. This distinction between relations of ideas and matters of fact is part of what drove Hume's skepticism about theology and traditional metaphysics. He wrote, quote, if we take in our hand any volume, like book, of divinity or school metaphysics, for instance, let us ask, does it contain any abstract reasoning concerning quantity or number? No. Does it contain any experimental reasoning concerning matter of fact and existence? No. Commit it then to the flames, for it can contain nothing but sophistry and illusion. In other words, Hume thinks that since arguments about God's existence and nature are not about relations of ideas, but neither are they about matters of fact, we should reject all such investigations as flimsy and useless. Furthermore, the distinction between relations of ideas and matters of fact is what motivates Hume to be an empiricist. For Hume, it's as if there's a chasm between claims that are logically necessary and certain, and on the other hand, claims that are known through experience. The former, relations of ideas, are wonderfully certain, but they're very few, and they don't tell us anything about the empirical physical world we live in. Thus, Hume thinks that if we're going to have knowledge, it will have to chiefly come from experience. So you might think, okay, Hume gives his blessing for us to go on our merry way, experiencing and observing the world and thus gaining knowledge. But there's a philosophical plot twist coming. Hume thinks we actually can't get knowledge from our experience. All right, part two, the problem of induction. Remember that Hume was writing in a time of tremendous scientific change and development in the aftermath of Newton. The search for causes to events is at the heart of science, and Newton put forth a set of causal laws to explain all kinds of motion. In more mundane terms, consider that after we've experienced the world for a while, we start to notice patterns of cause and effect. If we touch fire, it burns us and it hurts. Eating food makes hunger go away. Water surrounds us entirely when we're in it, and you can drown in it if you don't know how to swim. But Hume thinks we cannot truly know, cannot have 100% certainty, that fire will burn us and food will make hunger go away and water will surround us if we jump in, so on and so forth. Why not? Okay, well, consider what happens when you touch fire. Hume thinks that experience can be broken down into two things. One, or this experience, I should say, can be broken down into two things. One, a visual experience of a flame, and then two, a physical sensation of burning pain. But does your experience, the sensation, include sensation of the causal claim, fire causes pain? Well, no, that's a principle or a philosophical analysis, not something you can literally experience or sense with your like five senses. So one problem is that causal claims like fire causes pain aren't themselves literally part of the experience of touching fire, but rather something our mind brings to or imposes on the experience, having learned from past experience or being taught that by other people. Still, you might reason, maybe it's no big deal that we don't literally experience or sense causal claims like touching fire causes pain. After all, 
isn't part of growing up being kind of like an amateur scientist where you experience a bunch of different things and then maybe after a lot of experience the mind gathers up the experience like evidence and then comes to the conclusion touching fire causes pain. But Hume rejects even this. So consider the difference between the following two claims. One, I have found that such an object has always been attended with such an effect. So for example, I have found that touching fire has always caused a burn. And then the second claim, I foresee that other objects which are in appearance similar will be attended with similar effects. So I expect that when I see other fires in the future, they too will burn me if I touch them. Hume thinks these claims are importantly different. It's okay on his view to say that in the past, you have always experienced pain whenever you touch fire, but that does not give you grounds to claim that it will always be the same in the future. He writes, for all inferences from experience suppose as their foundation that the future will resemble the past. If there be any suspicion that the course of nature may change and that the past may be no rule for the future, all experience becomes useless and can give rise to no inference or conclusion. It is impossible, therefore, that any arguments from experience can prove this resemblance to the past to the future, of the past to the future, since all these arguments are founded on the supposition of that resemblance. In other words, in order to adopt that second claim, that touching fire in the future will cause me pain, Hume thinks I have to have knowledge of the principle, the future will resemble the past. But how could I come to know this? How could I come to know that this is true? The only thing I can appeal to in support of this principle is the fact that in the past, the future has always resembled the past. But wait, you can't appeal to past experience in order to prove that the future will resemble the past, since the past experience is only relevant if you have already shown that the future will resemble the past, which we haven't. That's exactly what we're trying to do. This then is Hume's problem of induction or the problem of inferring on the basis of our past experience that the future will resemble the past, and it grounds Hume's skepticism. In other words, although Hume is an empiricist and he thinks that knowledge comes from experience, he also thinks that we can't really gain any knowledge from experience because we have no certain knowledge that the future will resemble the past. And once we cease to be certain of that, our knowledge based on experience pretty much crumbles. For example, do I know that the sun will rise tomorrow? On Hume's view, no, because although it has in the past, how can I know that the future will be like the past? Now, Hume doesn't demand that we all stop believing things about the physical world entirely. He's not asking you to stop expecting the sun to rise. He simply thinks you need to downgrade that expectation, not call it knowledge. Our beliefs about the world and our past experience aren't knowledge, but neither can we give them up. Our expectation that the future will be like the past is, Hume says, just like a mere habit, a psychological tick that human beings can't shake off. Part three, Hume's ethics. So we know that Hume carves up human knowledge into relations of ideas and matters of fact, but he thinks relations of ideas can't tell us anything about the empirical physical world. It doesn't really come as a surprise then that Hume takes a pretty skeptical approach to ethics. He definitely doesn't think that we get ethical principles from reason. Ethical principles aren't logically necessary, first of all. And second of all, relations of ideas don't apply to the empirical world. And since he's skeptical, skeptical about God, which we'll get to in a second, he's not going to appeal to God or a religious tradition as a source of ethical commands. 
Thus, when it comes to ethics, Hume is famous for saying that reason is the slave of the passions. This doesn't mean that we should all run around being lawless, living in Hobbes's state of nature, however. For Hume, it just means that we should start with our affection towards and empathy with other people and build up ethics from this more emotional basis. In particular, Hume thinks we should get our moral rules from the following two sources, social utility and sympathy. Social utility just means that which is socially useful or beneficial. We should follow rules that would benefit all of us. So living in a society with no stealing or murder is beneficial to everyone, and so I should refrain from these kinds of acts. Sympathy is hopefully pretty intuitive. Hume, unlike Hobbes, for instance, thought that human beings have a natural sympathetic benevolence towards each other. Part 4, Hume on Philosophy of Religion In some past modules, we've discussed several arguments for the existence of God. Now we're going to consider some of Hume's criticisms of certain of those arguments. First, Recall arguments for the existence of God that focus on God as a necessary being. Aquinas puts forth some such arguments, as does Avicenna. According to Hume, logical necessity is a concept that applies only to relations between ideas, not matters of fact. So we cannot conclude that actual existence must conform to relations of ideas. We cannot conclude that God actually exists simply on the basis of reason and what holds rationally among relations of ideas. Second, recall arguments that appeal to the need for a first cause of the universe. Again, Aquinas and Avicenna and many others advance such arguments. You can maybe already guess what Hume will say here, having read about his views on causality above. He'll say that causality and causal beliefs are mere habits or psychological tics of the human mind based on what we observe and experience, and we should not make too much of this habit. It's not logically required that the world must have a cause. Third, although we didn't really discuss many of them, consider also arguments to the effect that the world is perfectly made for humans, and so it must have been designed by a god for humans. Hume has a slew of objections to this train of thought. I'm just going to um, go through them in numbered order. One, if the universe is like a house built by a master builder, then humans are like termites buried inside the basement wall. Hume reasons, in the context of the entire universe, how could we expect to have any knowledge about its purpose or design? We're not in a good position to grasp the big picture about who, if anyone, is behind this and what purpose it might have. Objection two. Furthermore, maybe the reason the world is so perfectly suited for human beings is because we've evolved to adapt to our environment? Objection three. Or grant that the universe is like a perfectly built house. House. How are we so sure that it's just one designer that built the house? Why not a whole crew of builders and designers? 